Gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for the marvellous, wonderful love of Jesus our Saviour. Help us to proclaim that more and more. Amen. Well, do be seated. Well, what's it like to live as a follower of Jesus in a world that is opposed to him? Often not easy, is it? Uh, We've been considering that in our previous series on 1 Peter, where we looked at what it means to be an alien, a stranger in this world, and yet to live in it. It's a challenge, isn't it? Working out what that looks like. We don't have the textbook answer for every situation in the Bible. We need to bring that to bear on our life. What does it look like? How do we work it out? And there are uncertainties for us as we seek to live the Christian life. Uncertainties as we start to wonder, well, other people seem to be enjoying life over there without Christ, without God. There's an attractiveness of what others chase after. How do we live as faithful followers of Jesus when other options look attractive to us? And how do we live as followers of Jesus as it seems to do so increasingly brings tension in conversations with friends and family in the workplace and in the media, we see perhaps an increasing antagonism to those who follow Jesus. Well, it would have been easier for the disciples, wouldn't it? They had Jesus there on hand. It's easy to give up everything and follow him when he's there in front of you calling him calling you. It's easy to know how to respond when you can just go to the master and say, what do we do? Have you ever wondered whether it would be better to have been back there and followed Jesus, walked around in the dust of Palestine? It would be easier to be a follower of Jesus, surely. Well, Jesus knew the time was coming when he would no longer be there walking around in the dust of Palestine with his disciples. He knew his death was imminent and he knew that they were rattled by his talk of them, of him leaving them, of him suffering and dying and returning to the Father. And so after Judas has left to go off and do his dirty work, Jesus takes this great opportunity that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, what's often called the farewell discourse, as Jesus teaches his disciples, prepares them for life without him in the flesh. And we are in that same boat, aren't we? As followers of Jesus, we don't have Jesus here in the flesh walking around among us. So much of what he says to comfort and console and encourage them applies directly to us. So we're going to have a look at that now. Uh, We're actually going to be looking at all of chapter 14 uh, this week and all of chapter 15 next week, uh, even though the reading was the first one. So it'd be the first half. So it'd be helpful to have that open on page 1081, John chapter 14. And in light of his 
impending departure as he goes to death and then returns to his father, Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, don't get upset about this, trust me. Now it's important to hear this right. Jesus isn't saying like we might often say, oh, don't worry, she'll be right. Trust me on this. How many of us call for people to trust us without any great certainty except our own self-confidence? We're often quick to tell people, don't worry, be happy, she'll be right, things will turn out okay. And we say this just out of a general sense of optimism, not with any confidence. But when Jesus tells his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, to be comforted, not to worry and to trust in him, he does so with great grounds for reassurance, great grounds for confidence and comfort. In fact, the Christian life, the Christian hope is one with great grounds for confidence and comfort. When we say don't worry, we're hoping for an optimistic outcome, aren't we? But the Christian hope is different from that. The Christian hope is waiting patiently for what we know will come with certainty. It's the difference between waiting for your birthday and waiting for the bus that's running late. Waiting for your birthday, whether or not your loved ones remember your birthday, your birthday will come, right? You'll keep turning over the pages of the calendar and one day it'll go from the day before your birthday to the day of your birthday. And so, certainly as young children, we wait anxiously, urgently, looking forward to our birthday, which will certainly come. You don't get to that day, turn over the calendar and find out you've missed it. Okay, and the Christian hope is that kind of hope, waiting with patience, kids don't always wait with patience for their birthday, but waiting with patience for what we're certain will come, as opposed to the bus that's running late that may or may not come. We hope that bus comes, but it's not the confident hope of Christian hope. And so Jesus, when he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, trust me, he does so, with great confidence for us. Great, great source of confidence and comfort because he gives us grounds by which we can be reassured. And he also identifies two ways in which his followers, two means in which they can achieve this comfort. He tells them to believe in him, to trust him and to obey him. But as he does so, he gives many promises to reassure them. So we're going to have a look at that. Firstly, he tells them, believe, just as you believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, you can believe in me, you can trust me because I'm trustworthy. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. He's saying, I wouldn't tell you this if you couldn't believe me. Believe me when I tell you this, because this is a sure promise. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you, and my father's house has many rooms. Uh, Buckingham Palace has many rooms. Anyone know how many? Guess? 100 down the front? I have an advance on 100? 300? Any advance on 300? 300? Over 300? 350, 500, keep going. 775 rooms. 775 rooms. And in the summer, you can go and visit Buckingham Palace. Has anyone been there? Why, why can you go in the summer? It, it's open because the Queen's up at Balmoral enjoying her summer holidays, right? Uh, is it cheap to get in? Uh, it, it, <laughs> keys are under the mat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the state rooms and garden highlight tour, it will cost you 30 pounds and 50 pence. How about that? So there, there's a great house with many rooms that you can go and visit. But Jesus is offering us something much greater, on a scale we can't imagine. He says, my father's house has many rooms, but these are not places you can pop in and visit. He's saying, my father's house has many resting places, many places we can go and stay there forever. You can't stay in Buckingham Palace forever. The average tour, I'm told, takes two to two and a half hours. But Jesus is promising a permanent place in the Father's house. And what's more, when you visit Buckingham Palace, the sovereign's flag isn't flying. That only flies when she's at home. When she's away at Balmoral, it's not flying. But in the Father's house, we stay there in the very presence of our sovereign. And £30.50 is a lot. Uh, with the Australian dollar the way it is, uh, but there is no cost to stay in the Father's house because Jesus pays that cost for us. He is going to the Father to prepare a place for us. And what's more, he's not just saying, I'm going this way, you give me a five-minute head start and you follow after me. Uh, he says, I'm going there in order that I might come back and take you to be with me. Jesus is going to prepare a, a place for us. He's saying he's going to do that by his death on the cross and raising to new life. And the very purpose for him going is in order that he might come back and take us to be with him. So the promise there is actually to be with him and God the Father in their place forever. And Jesus said, I wouldn't tell you this unless it were true. We, trust me as I tell you this. And he says we can trust him also, not only because he is trustworthy, but because of who he is. Thomas gets a bit anxious. He said, we don't even know where you're going, so how can we know the way there? Jesus replies... I am the way and the truth and the life. At this point, all our scripture teachers are thinking out the actions from the scripture assembly. I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, 
Vicky will teach them to you afterwards. Jesus is saying, you can trust me on this because of who I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. And these are not three unrelated things. I'm this and I'm also this and I'm also this. But they're interrelated. I am the true and life-giving way. He says, I am the way. It's not just that I point you to the way, show you the way. In fact, we're spared from that. He doesn't say, this is the way to the Father. You have to be crucified and then raised to life. But in being crucified and raised to life, he creates the way for us. He is the way. He is the way to God because he is the truth of God and he is the life of God. So he in himself is the way. He in himself is the truth. He is the supreme revelation of God. He, just, he doesn't just teach us about God, but he is in himself God's revelation. He is God's word made flesh, who only says and does what his father shows him. We're introduced to this idea right at the beginning of John's Gospel as Jesus is introduced. Chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus doesn't just tell us the truth, but he is the truth. And Jesus doesn't only just point us to life, but is in himself the source of all life. Chapter 1, verse 4, In him was life. And that life was the light of all people. Jesus has been revealed through John's Gospel as the one who has life in himself. And as we were reminded on Easter Sunday, uh, as Graham preached from John chapter 11, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Not just a way to life, but life itself. Now this claim of Jesus that he is the way and the truth and the life is an exclusive claim of the highest order. He says, no one comes to God the Father except through me. He doesn't just claim that he's one of eight possible ways to heaven, one, one of eight possible ways to know God. He is the way, the one and only way. He is not just the source of some truth, he is truth itself, truth incarnate. And he is not just appointed to eternal life, but life itself. So what does that mean? And do we really believe it? Do we really believe that there is no way to God apart from through faith in Jesus? Do, do we think that, as is popular, even in some Christian circles, well, other faith traditions, other religious groups have some truth that we can learn from? Jesus says, I am the truth, which means even if there's the impression of truth outside of Jesus, it is at best a poor replica of the truth in Jesus, a counterfeit, an attempt at a copy of the truth that we find in Jesus. 
So we cannot go to other faith groups, other faith traditions, seeking any truth. We'll just find, at best, a distortion of the truth. We cannot hope to find any other way to God the Father, as if Jesus is kind of the front door, but there's a secret back door. Because as we'll go on to see, Jesus reminds us that he and the Father are so closely united in relationship that if you see Jesus, you see the Father. And so you can't come to the Father apart from the Son. And Jesus is the source of all life. So we can't pretend to have true life apart from him. So here's the question. Do we really believe this? Do we believe that it's true for ourselves? More importantly, do not more importantly, but just as importantly, do we believe that it's true for our family and friends? Those who chase after other things, those who follow other faiths or none. Do we really believe that it's true for them? Or do we kind of secretly hope that there's another way? That God will provide a consolation prize? That even those who are nice neighbours but follow a different God might somehow still be saved through Jesus? Jesus doesn't give us that option. No one comes to the Father except through him. But he doesn't leave us guessing either. It's not like you need to put all your eggs in this basket, but there's some uncertainty. He gives us a true, confident, absolutely confident and certain hope. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me, except through me. And so we can trust Jesus. We can find comfort and confidence in him because of not only what he says, but who he is. And if he is the way and the truth and the life, then he ought to be the object of our study We want to know him more, understand him more, love him more, live for him more. And he says that we can have certainty as we trust in him. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, or perhaps even certainly, you do know him and have seen him. If you know Jesus, you know God, certainly. Absolutely, he says. So we can trust Jesus because he himself is trustworthy as he makes those promises. We can trust Jesus uh, because of who he is. And we can trust Jesus because of his intimate relationship with God the Father. That what he says we know comes from God the Father himself. And so we can trust Jesus when he says, verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? I don't, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Trust me because it's the God, the Father working through me. And then he says, 
But that's not the only source of your confidence. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. See what I've been saying, see what I've been doing, see that it is entirely consistent with what God has revealed about himself in the past and demonstrates God's presence in me. We can trust Jesus, he is trustworthy, he is the way and the truth and the life and he is in an intimate relationship with God the Father. And as we do that, he makes us another promise, the confidence we can have that we know the Father, but the confidence that he will use us as well. Verse 12, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What a promise. That we will do even greater things than what Jesus was doing? How does that work? What, what does that look like? Well, firstly, I think it's important to understand what Jesus means by these greater things, these greater works. It's not talking about the miraculous signs he did as he turned water into wine and healed the blind man, raised Lazarus from from death. John presents all those things as signs which point to who Jesus is. Okay, the works that Jesus was doing was in revealing God to people and bringing about the kingdom of God. So this is not a promise that will heal the blind or turn water into wine, but do greater works. How can we do these greater works? Jesus says, you're going to do greater things because I am going to the Father. We do greater things because of Jesus' death and resurrection. In the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, his glorification. And the works we do are not our own works. We're continuing the works of Jesus, whose works were the work of God the Father himself. And so the greater works we do are greater because they come in the light of Jesus' death and victory. They come in the age of the kingdom of God, which has been brought about through that. They come in the light of being able to point people to Jesus' death and resurrection, to Christ crucified. And so as we here at St. Stephen seek to make followers of Jesus Christ, we do so because... Christ has died and been raised again. And so we're continuing the work of Jesus, but in the era of his victory. Does that make sense? Uh, So the works we're doing is in proclaiming Christ crucified and growing the kingdom. God's work in us, through us, in dependence on him. And so when Jesus promises that whatever we ask in his name... He will do it. It's in that context, as we seek to do these works, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, in accordance with his will and his character, 
he will do you see the just the the um, motivation so that the father may be glorified in the son okay so that's the caveat it's not God may use the Ferrari that you pray for to glorify Christ, uh, God the Father, through the Son, but probably not. So as you pray for that, even if you say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer, it's not a promise that he'll do that. But as we seek to do the works of Jesus, as we seek to proclaim his kingdom and make followers of Jesus... Jesus promises that he will hear our prayers and answer them that God might be glorified. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? So as we seek to live as followers of Jesus in a world opposed to him, knowing that he will work in us to bring about his good purposes, to continue his Father's work, to bring glory to him, gives us great confidence, doesn't it? So we can believe in Jesus, trust in him because he is trustworthy because of who he is and because of his loving relationship with the Father. So Jesus tells us not to let our hearts be troubled and he tells us that we can do that by trusting in him. Further, he tells us we can do it by obeying him. You could probably write a children's song, Trust and Obey, There's No Other Way. Have a look, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Jesus calls us to trust in him, to believe in him, and to demonstrate that in loving obedience. Obedience is the logical outworking of a love for Jesus. It's important to recognise here, this is not, it's not conditional. Jesus is saying here, if you love me, if you're trusting me, if you're putting your faith in me, loving me, then you will keep my commands. Keep my commands, you will keep them. And in addition, I will send you another advocate who's the Holy Spirit. He's not saying only if you obey me will I then send you the Spirit. Obedience is the demonstration, the attribute of somebody who truly loves Jesus, someone who's a true follower. Obedience is the attribute of the true follower, not the precondition for the true follower. Does that make sense? And we see, ultimately, this relationship between love and obedience in Jesus himself. If you flick right down to the end of the chapter, verse 31. I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus' love for the Father demonstrates itself in his perfect obedience to the Father. 
And so for those who truly trust in Jesus, who are following him, who are loving him, seeking to live obedient lives, Jesus outlines a long list of the promises that we will receive as we do that. He says, we will live because he lives. We will receive the Spirit. We will be loved by the Father and by the Son. In fact, we will be united with the Father and with the Son by the Spirit. And so for the disciples who are wondering, how is this going to work out when Jesus leaves us? The promise is actually not for, a, uh, not for less access to God after Jesus leaves, but for greater access as we are drawn into that relationship between the Father and the Son. So we're loved by the Father, united with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And we will receive God's peace. You know Jesus' promise of going to prepare a place in the Father's house and he'll come back and take us to be with him? Well, Jesus says he does that in the person of the Holy Spirit. Have a look, verse 20. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Uh, And then later on he says, uh, and I've lost my place. Uh, Verse 28. No, it's not there. Where am I looking for? Here. Here. Uh, Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So the promise of a room in the Father's house is not only a future promise, but a present promise, that God is with us now by his Spirit. Certainly, when Christ returns, we will see him face to face and we will enjoy a relationship with God uh, greater than we can see and understand at the moment. But this is not only a future promise, that God himself will come and make his home with us by his Holy Spirit. Now, a few things to say about this promised spirit. He's to be another advocate. In the same way that Jesus is an advocate, a helper, one who, who uh, acts on our behalf, then the Spirit is to do that. And the Spirit is not to be a substitute for Jesus, but in the Spirit, through the Spirit, Jesus is present there himself in the life of the believer. Just as Jesus is the truth, the Spirit is described as the Spirit of the truth who will lead the disciples in all truth reminding them of what Jesus had said. Have a look at verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Spirit's work is to remind his disciples of what Jesus has said. The Spirit's not any new revelation of God, but is using the words of Jesus himself to reveal God. In the first instance, in reminding the disciples of everything Jesus said, 
The Spirit has done that. Uh, and so inspired the New Testament, the Holy Scriptures, that we might know God. And continues to do that as we come to the, the Scriptures and are reminded of what Jesus has said. The Spirit who inspired these Scriptures is the one who teaches us as we read them. And so we can have great confidence in the Scriptures because it wasn't just up to Peter to remember what Jesus had said. It wasn't just up to John to scratch together years after the event and try, what was it that Jesus said? The Spirit himself reminded them and teaches us. So we can have great confidence in the Bible. And the Spirit uses Jesus' own words, his own revelation of the Father, in order to bring about the Father's purpose. So Jesus says, you don't need to be anxious. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and obey me and you will know the presence of Father, Son and Holy Spirit as he sends the Spirit to us, indwelling in us forever. And in that, we will know a unique peace in God our Father through belief in Jesus Christ, his Son, who is the way, the truth and the life. Let me close with a poem which I didn't write. <laughs> I am the way to God, I did not come to light a path, to blaze a trail, that you may simply follow in my tracks, pursue my shadow like a prize that cheaply won. My life reveals the life of God, the sum of all he is and does. So how can you, the sons of night, look on me and construe my way as just the road for you to run? My path takes in Gethsemane, the cross and stark rejection draped in agony. My way to God embraces utmost loss. Your way to God is not my way, but me. Each other path is dismal swamp or fraud. I stand alone. I am the way to God. I am the truth of God. I do not claim I merely speak the truth, as though I were a prophet, but no more a channel stirred by spirit power of purely human frame. Nor do I say that when I take his name upon my lips, my teaching cannot err, though that is true. A mere interpreter, I'm not, some prophet voice of special fame. In timeless reaches of eternity, the triune God decided that the word, the self-expression of the deity, would put on flesh and blood and thus be heard. The claim to speak the truth, good men applaud. I claim much more. I am the truth of God. I am the resurrection life. It's not as though I merely bear life-giving drink, a magic elixir, which, men might think, is cheap because though lavish, it's not bought. The price of life was fully paid. I fought with death and black despair, for I'm the drink of life. 
The resurrection mourns the link between my death and endless life long sought. I am the firstborn from the dead. And by my triumph, I deal death to lusts and hates. My life I now extend to men and ply them with the draught that ever satiates. Religion's page with empty boasts is rife, but I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy you have revealed yourself to us in your Son and in your Word. We thank you that we can have the confidence to know that if we know Jesus, we know you. Help us not to be anxious or troubled as we seek to live as your followers in this world but comfort us as we come to trust in Jesus more and more as the way, the truth and the life and seek to live obedient lives through faith in him. And grant us, gracious Lord, the great joy of partnering with you as we seek to do the great works of declaring your love to a world lost without you. We ask that you might answer our prayers and bring many people into your kingdom as followers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.